We continue with the reading of Jonah. And God had not brought upon Nineveh the judgment that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it better me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? We go to a wonderful reading from Exodus. Moses had asked the Lord, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name Yahweh in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Amen. Well, thank you, and let me add my welcome again. Uh, whether you're newish to church, uh, wherever you're at and you're thinking about God, uh, about Jesus, about life uh, and death, it's good you're here, uh, and for the rest of us as well. How about I pray before we begin? Most Heavenly Father, um, we give thanks for the scriptures and thank you for your spirit. And so we now pray that you would please uh, do what only you can do. Uh, lead us into the truth and the love of your word for our lives and to those changes uh, that you would uh, have us uh, from us in response to your word. Your word is life. May your word be life to us this morning. Have you ever been um, made uncomfortable by an act of compassion uh, that you've seen or maybe uh, been on the receiving end of? This photo in the leaflets and on the uh, slide, I think, now. It's, the year is 1996 in America in a town called Ann Arbor, Michigan. 18-year-old Keisha Thomas was one of a group of locals who had gathered to protest a Ku Klux Klan rally. On one side of the barrier were the Ku Klux Klan, on the other side were the protesters. When a fellow protester shouted into a megaphone, there's a Klansman in the crowd, a moment of chaos ensued. The man who was wearing a Confederate flag T-shirt and had an SS tattoo uh, on his body, he tried to run away. But the protesters caught him, threw him to the ground and began to beat him. In a now famous moment captured on uh, film by photographer Mark Brunner, 18-year-old, 18-year-old Keshia Thomas jumped between the protesters and the Klansmen, shielding him from their blows. It became one of Life magazine's photographs of the year. This act of uncomfortable compassion started a really big conversation in all of America. It actually started a whole movement. Has an act of compassion ever caused you to put yourself in the line of fire for an enemy like this? I mean, in some respects, we may have already done it for our kids, a family member maybe. You might have even be willing to do it for certain friends. But what about for someone that just arouses anger at the mention of their name? Maybe they were driving drunk and hit one of your relatives. Someone that you loathe, you despise, you just think really, really deserve to get punished, to deserve what they get. See, this sort of uncomfortable compassion on display by Keshia Thomas, um, isn't it? It's, 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 I don't know about you, but as I read the story and just sat with this photo, tried to put me in that photo... It just made me uncomfortable because if I'm honest, that would not have been my reflex action of it as an 18-year-old. <laughs> and if I'm really honest, I'm still not sure it would be today. What about you? You see, here we are, many of us, as followers of the Lord Jesus. Don't we follow a servant leader who did the ultimate, Cashier Thomas, put himself in the line of fire? who gave his life as a ransom that you and I might have life. The Apostle Paul, how does he sum it up in Romans 5? 
One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so again, what might an act of uncomfortable compassion look like if someone caught a photo of you doing it? That's the question we're going to explore. As we, uh, you have been in, in past weeks, uh, sitting in the book of Jonah, and I believe I'm the last, is that right? In, in a line of, yeah, um, not the least, so I think someone said something that the last would be first, didn't they? First would be last? Yeah, so anyway, I'll just leave you that one as well. But here's, here's what I want to suggest. That Jonah is a story of very, very uncomfortable compassion. And I think that's why it's in the Bible. See, the book of Jonah, doesn't it tells us how God, Jonah was commissioned by God to go to Nineveh, uh, uh, the capital of Assyria, prophecy God's imminent judgment and destruction on the city. But why does God want Jonah to go to Nineveh of all places, the enemy of God's people, a people with an even worse track record than the KKK? We know the story, don't we? Jonah has a dummy spit. Uh, he sets off to get as far away from Nineveh in the presence of the Lord as he can. But why? What's driving Jonah to do the exact opposite of what God commands him to do? Now, of course, um, it is impossible. And Jonah discovers that he can't escape the living presence of God or God's mission for him. And so by means of a storm at sea, a very big fish, God ensures that Jonah does go to Nineveh this pagan enemy city of Israel, who have so terrorised Jonah's people. We don't know the backstory, but maybe even Jonah and his own family have been on the receiving end. Jonah spends three days proclaiming God's coming judgment. They are to be overturned by the Lord in 40 days' time. And stunningly, this city of more than 120,000 people, including the king, are convicted by Jonah's preaching. They believe and repent and God revokes his judgment. He relents from destroying them at this time. But again, how can God relent on his own judgment? Jonah chapter 4 reveals not only the answer to the why behind Jonah's anger and actions, but more importantly, the why behind God's acts of very uncomfortable compassion. And they're littered right throughout the Bible, aren't they? And so point one, the why behind Jonah's actions and anger. There is an outline in your leaflets if you want to follow along. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, we're told, and he was angry. Now, we all get upset. Uh, to be human is to get upset. Sometimes we even get angry. But just in this chapter, five times we're told Jonah gets angry. Five times. And how angry at God is he? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, that is one serious dummy spit, isn't it? Like, isn't it? Like, serious. You're so angry at God, you take my life. Jonah, we're told, is exceedingly displeased. It literally means what God had done was exceedingly evil in Jonah's eyes. 
It was exceedingly evil to Jonah that more than 120,000 people were overturned by God's wrath. Sorry, were not overturned by God's wrath and did not get the punishment that Jonah thought they deserved. Now, that's all the boys and girls and grown-ups, including little Marcellus back there who's asleep in the pram. That's all the boys and girls and grown-ups in Mount Barker three times over. Okay? Verse 2. For only the second time in the book, Jonah prays. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? I mean, imagine he prayed with great all right, anger and aspiration. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and, and relenting from disaster. And Now, what's Jonah really saying to God here? He's just saying, look, I know this is your character. I know this is the sort of God you are. But how did Jonah know that? That the Lord is a gracious God. He's merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Well, that brings us to point two, the definitive compassion encounter in the Bible. It's that second reading. And it really answers the question, who is God? It's the most basic life-transforming question a human can explore. And if you're here this morning, you've never seriously grappled with that question. Who alone is the true and living God? I want to encourage you to uh, set yourself on a course to do that. See, God reveals himself to Moses as the Lord um, back in Exodus chapter 3. It's the burning bush incident. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. It's a name that asserts God's sovereign freedom to be God, that he has the right to self-determine who he is, what he does, what he chooses, how he behaves. That is, it's God saying, I can never, ever, ever be indebted to anyone or under anyone's control. See, the name the Lord also reveals, though, God's commitment to be God of his people. It's God saying to humanity, I want to be known and I want to know you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Now, of course, to know one's character is to know who the person truly is, isn't it? Of of what it's like to be in a relationship with them. It's why Moses prays to God, show me your glory. And if you're ever stuck for something to pray at the start of a day, that's not a bad one. (laughs) Lord, show me more of your glory this day. Show me more of the true truth of who you are, of what you're like. What does God say in Exodus 33, 19? I will make all my goodness, all my character pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's why this moment is one of the most definitive encounters in the Bible. In fact, in the history of the world. Because this encounter changed the course of history forever. See, God's revelation to Moses at Sinai in Exodus 34 
It's the fullest description of God's character anywhere in the Bible. Did you know that? The whole encounter from God tucking Moses into a rock, hiding him with his hand as he passes by, protecting him from being um, annihilated by the glory of, of the Lord. The whole encounter is an expression of God's compassion and mercy. And so we're told that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love and for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And again, fun, there's a little fun fact for you. Did you know this is the only time in Scripture where the Lord repeats his personal name twice? The Lord, the Lord. It's like God is saying, I really, really am this God. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now remember what's just happened in Exodus 32, if you know the story. <laughs> Moses is about, he's an 80-year-old man at this time. He's, he's been up and down Sinai probably about 19 times, for people who like their math. <laughs> All right. Uh, he's just come down carrying the two tablets that the finger of God has inscribed with the Ten Commands. But they lie smashed at the foot of Sinai. Because what did he discover when he come down? All Israel had given up on Moses and on Moses' God. They'd made a golden calf. They were worshipping a golden calf as God. Now, off the back of God's own people's faithless and flagrant rejection of him as their God, who does God reveal himself to be? Wrathful, powerful, awesome. No. I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Five positive relational attributes about how God has and will always relate to his chosen people. And again, notice the first definitive divine attribute, the very first attribute that God reveals about himself. It's not holiness, powerful or fearsome, but merciful. The word is chrakam in Hebrew, and it means compassion, tender mercy, pity. It's related to the Hebrew word for womb, a mother's womb, rachem. It's the love, the tender mercy and compassion elicited by a helpless baby from a parent, from a mother or father. That word gracious, it means finding undeserved favour before God's face. You put merciful and gracious together and God says it means I'm very, very slow to become angry when I've got every right to be very angry. Abounding in steadfast love, again in Hebrew, the word is hesed, hesed. It's one of the most difficult words in all the languages of the world to define. Some even suggest this word hesed has the largest semantic range of any word of any language in the world. It's, 
like the sun sort of, you know, attracts planets and it's, it, it's, it's, it's like a word that attracts all these other words to try to define it in the Bible. It's a love that is kind. It's merciful. Uh, it's true truth. It's unfailing. It's loyal love. It's relentless love, dependable love, unlimited love, generous love, steadfast love. Hesed, God's hesed and faithfulness, they go together because God is faithfulness in his love, in his chesed. See, the whole Bible, isn't it really just a story about how God remains faithful to his people even when they are faithless? Biblical history is just one long story of this God abounding in chesed and faithfulness to his people then and even now today, this morning. What's God doing with you right now, this morning? He's abounding in his chesed, love and faithfulness toward you. The Lord choosing to have mercy and not wipe out Israel after the golden calf incident, it sets an extraordinary precedent for God's future dealings, not just with Israel, but all the nations. I think this is how Jonah can say, I knew that the Lord is gracious, God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love. Now, here is another interesting fun fact. Really interesting. Up until the book of Jonah, this character description of God has only ever been used to talk about God's relationship with his own people, Israel. It's the first time it's used to talk about God's relationship with a foreign nation. It's applied positively to God's relationship, not just with a non-Jewish nation, but a nation is one of the greatest enemies of Israel. Jonah sees it as exceedingly evil that God should be merciful to unbelievers and foreign nations. Which brings us to point three then. The Lord's uncomfortable compassion lesson for Jonah. I don't know about you, I take great encouragement from God's patient dealings with Jonah. If I'm honest, if we're honest, isn't there a bit of Jonah in each of us? And so here he is, you can imagine Jonah's sitting, you know, on a hill, you know, east of where we're meeting this morning over there. He's watching us to see if God's going to judge us, you know. <laughs> he's sitting on a hill east of Nineveh. His, 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 his commission's completed. He's gone and preached the gospel. He's watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. And he's sitting there stewing with anger, you know. You've got the episode with the sun. The castor oil plant that grows up overnight and then it dies. The worm, the hot easterly that God sends. All to teach Jonah and us about the Lord's uncomfortable compassion for all people. Even though those that we deem as despicable. And I think the lesson, it's the lesson of the plant there in verses 9 to 11. Let me, let me read you again. This is God speaking. Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. There it is again. <laughs> and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I have compassion for Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, that is who do not know about the judgment they are living under, who do not know about my compassion 
to want to see them turn and take up my offer of forgiveness and be saved from the perishing. Should not I have compassion for Nineveh? Well, what happens? Well, it's interesting. Um, by the dating of, of the prophet Jonah, and you've got another little minor prophet called Nahum, Nahum, which is about 150 years after Jonah. It seems that the people of Nineveh and Assyria were spared God's justice for more than 150 years. As prophesied by Nahum 150 years or so after Jonah, God's patience for Assyria and their capital Nineveh to turn to God, to change their ways, it finally runs out. Nineveh and all Assyria do eventually experience that part of God's revealed character that we also heard read out when God revealed himself to Moses. Where he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. Those who refuse to repent and turn to me and take up my offer of forgiveness. And of course, Jesus taught he too was coming back again to judge the living and the dead. Taught that every human lives and dies once and faces judgment before him, Hebrews 9.27. But of course, that's then. But now the nations, God in his long-suffering love, he's holding off the day of his son's return so the gospel can go out. But friends, we live in a world, people of nations, they do not know their right hand from their left. Yeah, your right hand from the left, there you go. Even I don't know my right hand from my left. They don't know that they're living under the judgment of God. That every human is born under the judgment of God. Marcellus has been born into original sin. He's been born under the judgment of God. And so, unless someone goes to tell them, how can they know of who God is, his compassion, his mercy, that his, his forgiveness, the availability of the gift of eternal life by faith in his son for all who will take refuge in him. And so as we sort of turn the corner for the home straight, the Lord's uncomfortable compassion lesson for us, I mean, what is it? Well, a couple of reflections. I thought I'd start with myself and Bush Church Aid and then, and then um, finish with you guys this morning. Last couple of years... <clears throat> Um, God's done a bit of a number on me. I've been corrected, even rebuked, I think. You know, I planted a busy city church and there were just people everywhere in my front windscreen. And I'll be honest, I grew up in the country, but I didn't really spare a thought much for people out in the country. See, when it comes to who God has compassion for to be saved, God doesn't play favourites. Neither should I. I mean, who on earth do I think I am to judge someone more worthy of hearing the gospel just because more of them are living in the city? <laughs> who am I to think, oh, but, you know, those guys, there are only, only a couple of hundred of them living, you know, out down in Keith. Let's just write them off like we might write off a tax, you know. Who am I to do that? Who am I, or for you for that matter, really, about to do a Jonah and say to God, I mean, are we really about to say to God, oh, look, it's actually a bit far for me. Um, and you know what? The economics for me don't add up. It's going to sort of just be too costly, really. And I'd have to give up too much. And it means I wouldn't be able to see my friends or family as often. And I mean, I wouldn't be able to have my kids in that school. I wouldn't be. One of the reasons I think BCA is in good shape at the moment is because it's led by a bloke, my boss, Greg Harris, and other leaders. We're actually getting together this week um, in Sydney for AGM. 
and my boss and others, they've got such great compassion for people living in regional and remote Australia. People who do not yet know their right hand from their left. But also some of the heroes, uh, my heroes, have become just some of the many field staff that are going the distance to tell people about Jesus. Ordinary men and women willing to go to faraway places, far away from family, far away from convenience and comforts, far away from choice of schools, because they know without someone to tell and to teach these people the gospel, that the boys and girls and grown-ups, they will perish. In view of Jesus' life given for them, but I think they've worked something else out, that God's compassion is never not uncomfortable. God's compassion is never not disruptive or interruptive for our busy life and agendas. It's never not going to be uncomfortable or costly if we're serious about joining Jesus' fishing team for people. The privilege for over 30 years, Gita and I, being part of uh, Trinity Network of churches, um, back when there was just one <laughs> in the city. I can say the same thing, though. It's, it's in good hands. You know, Gita and I, we had the privilege of knowing Paul and Sue. Uh, they lead the Trinity Network of churches. Uh, we've known them for more than 30 years. Paul and Sue, they got ridiculously big-hearted compassion for people. Their personal compassion culture for people, especially for people who don't yet know Jesus, it is massive. A couple of years ago when Gita and I were packing up our house to move further south, I unexpectedly ended up in hospital for a week, a few weeks out from the deadline. And so I got out, we put out the distress flare for help. And despite how busy I knew Paul was, not just leading 14 churches, but the zillion other things he was doing, Paul and Sue were some of the first people turning up, giving a whole day and then some, to come and pack boxes in our house and help us move. That's just what they're like. And right next to him, giving more than a day, was the director of church planning for the Trinity Network, Ben and Sarah and the kids, they're helping us as well. Not just packing boxes, but actually helping to set the house up. It's the sort of personal compassion culture that marinates the plants and the planters and the church plants. If you want to know what makes the Trinity Church tick, this is it. It's compassion. It's this compassion for people. And so what might the uncomfortable compassion lesson be for the Trinity Network? Well, whatever happens, whatever's going on, even a COVID pandemic, (laughs) whatever you do, (laughs) don't stop planting churches. It's interesting they planted two during COVID. Pretty stunning, I reckon. Don't stop planting more churches more quickly to more faraway places. How will new churches in unreached suburbs and regional towns be planted, though? Well, it's just people like you, just you guys, you come and say, actually, Ben, you're here this morning, aren't you? There you go. You come up to Ben. Hey, Ben, if Trinity Network ever wanted to plant a church in, dot, 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 (laughs) I'd be willing not only to help fund it, but I'd be willing to go the distance to help start it. Now, as I do the rounds in this role, uh, in all the Trinity churches, I've met some people who are now on their second and third church plant. They've moved three times to help start a new church. How cool is that? 
Could that be you? I don't know. Well, closer to home, what could the Lord's uncomfortable compassion lesson for Trinity Church Mount Barker be? I mean, you're about to have your AGM. I think it's when you're meant to actually be a bit vulnerable, be transparent, you know, talk about staff as a family. (laughs) Well, here's my thought, Bubble. It's really, really not about you. It's just not about you. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Try and illustrate. A little while ago, a book and then the movie came out called Just Mercy. It's a real-life story about Brian Stevenson working with prisoners who were on death row facing the death penalty. Brian Stevenson finally shares something of what he's discovered about loving the way of mercy and compassion. Mercy is most transformative when it's directed at the undeserving. Just mercy, the power of it, it actually belongs to the undeserving. Dear brothers and sisters, do we not sit here this morning as those who are completely undeserving of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. The only way healthy churches can grow is off the back of ridiculous acts of compassion, small and big, for the undeserving. Getting out a bit early to turn up. Stopping your busy agenda to take a meal around to that family you know who are struggling or sick or just whatever it is. Praying for courage to again have a go at speaking the gospel into someone's life. Who will be the undeserving that God is going to put in your life? Maybe he already has. Who will be the undeserving God will, will next give you the opportunity for an act of uncomfortable, cross-like compassion? It might not be as extravagant like 18-year-old Kesha Thomas, you know, where you're literally putting your, your life in harm's way to save the life of an undeserving person who have devoted their life to hating you. But maybe it will. Maybe it's the, that sort of extravagant, uncomfortable grace that God is wanting from you. What might an act of cross-shaped, uncomfortable compassion look like? If someone catches you on photo this week or next or next month, what might that, what could it look like by the grace of God? Can I pray for us? Merciful Heavenly Father, let me just uh, thank you that um, such is your mercy, you revealed who you are the glory of all your goodness to Moses, to us, to humanity. Because of your son, Jesus, we can know your love. And we, I want to pray for everyone here, for the people of Trinity Mount Barker, that I want to pray that you might mercifully continue to so teach us and form us and conform us and mould us 
by this compassion, this mercy, the mercy of the cross, that you might so enable us to actually give up, to let go of, to deny those things we need to in our lives, that we might more wholeheartedly, more joyfully pick up our own cross and follow after you. And we pray this not just for our salvation, we actually pray this for the good and the salvation of those here in Mount Barker and beyond who don't know you. And we pray this for your glory, your glory, Lord, in the mighty and precious and powerful name of your son, Jesus. And the people said,